Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Galligan. In today's episode, a memoir of breaking free and reinvention with journalist and broadcaster Tom Tilly. From the outside, Tilly's childhood seemed ordinary. The first son of a pastor, he grew up in a beautiful country town where life revolved around football, his loving family, and their Pentecostal faith. But behind church doors, a strictly enforced set of rules included a looming ultimatum. If Tom didn't speak in tongues, he'd go to hell and be outcast from his close-knit, devout community. Tom Tilly was interviewed by John Safran. Here's John. G'day, I'm John Safran, and I'm here with Mr. Tom Tilly of radio and television fame, and now book fame. Here's your first one, Speaking in Tongues, a memoir by Tom Tilly. And it's called Speaking in Tongues because that's something that the revival church you grew up in does. So can, can you tell us what Speaking in Tongues is? Yeah. So um, great to chat to you, John. I kind of can't believe we're in the situation where I'm sharing my whole kind of intimate spiritual journey and you're asking me questions about it because the first time I saw you enter this space was John Safran versus God. And you did some really crazy, beautiful, wild things. And, you know, thankfully we're on the other end of a Zoom call and there'll be no sort of full body stuff today. But <laughs> we, we can compare war stories. Absolutely. Yeah. So to explain what the practice actually is, it's, it's very common in the Pentecostal movement. And it's basically where. God gives you this language. No one else can understand. Not even you can really understand. It's a it's a, a collection of sounds and syllables that, that sound like a whole new language. And the idea is that this allows your kind of your, your heart and soul to connect directly to God without the limitations of, of linguistics and language. You can just connect directly to him, like your own sort of personal hotline. That's kind of what it means for most modern Pentecostals. Well, that's interesting because I kind of half thought that it meant you were like drawing a language, like you're, you're talking on behalf, your body was talking on behalf of some other spirit floating around, but that, that sounds like it's not the case. Well, that's the, that's the way we understood it in our church and, and from the other Pentecostal churches I went to in my own journey of leaving my church, that's that's what they seem to think about it as well. So the Greek word for that is or glossolia. There's another form of it where you actually speak out in a language that other people do understand. And that's actually what happened on the day of Pentecost in the Bible, which is what the Pentecostal movement's named after. People came from all over the Mediterranean and Middle East and said, oh, these people are speaking our, our languages, but they never learned them. So there's two different kinds of it. So, sorry, yeah, I just looked it up, glossolalia and xenolalia. So this, this is more like a political angle on it is I read recently that because the Christians, they obviously came after the Jews and therefore mm-hmm. when they were starting up, they had to provide the argument about like why they were the right way and the Jews mm-hmm. weren't the right way anymore. And one thing was about this like dissing the intermediaries in Judaism, like there you have to have the you know the high priests, the rabbis, and all that stuff like that. But you know yeah. here with Christianity, we can talk directly to God. So th- and this was sort of like a real on the sharp end of that of saying, well, you know, this is how much 
you know, with Christianity, you can connect, you can connect with God, and you don't need these intermediaries. Yeah, that I can see how that logic would would come about that you can even have your own direct language to Him um, rather than yeah um, having to go through other people, let alone a man made language. Both your dad and your mum they 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 were members of this revival church. They they, they came separately. Yeah, they mum was about. 24 when she came, dad was about 29, 30. They came completely of their own separate pathways. They didn't know any other people in common and they met inside the church. But your dad at least, and they were members of just more kind of standard Christian churches beforehand. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of people of their generation, they'd grown up going to church, but it hadn't been that sort of really active, highly involved kind of church life that a a Pentecostal would often have. So dad was in the Baptist church in his local suburb in Adelaide. The church had been built by a, some forebear family member of his. Mum was, yeah, they, they sort of went to the Uniting Church, but she went down to a, um, a boarding school in Sydney. So she went to, to church in that environment, but never in this really active way. So when they came, when they were sort of drawn back to it after going on really interesting adventures, my parents had amazing stories, you know, in between leaving school and eventually finding God. And they were sort of children of the 60s and 70s and mum travelled the world, dad had lived in Arnhem Land, been caught up to the army, um, studied journalism, but they they felt a bit empty-handed, um, like all those promises of that hippie era hadn't kind of um, landed. So when they found like a revitalised, energised, experiential version of what they'd grown up with that really resonated. You talk about in the book about how one of the little lumps that messed with your head, Mm. because you were born into this revival church, Mm. was that part of it for your parents that seemed awesome was they'd gone on all these adventures that you talk about, like your father being called up to the Vietnam War, but he didn't actually go overseas, did he? He just trained in the army in Australia? Yeah. They went on all these crazy adventures and then it sort of became like, Oh, and that's why we had to end up in this church, and that's why we're, you know, collapsing and talking tongues. Like, if you, if you're born into it, you felt you weren't having, even though you were having the adventures, but you just didn't realize it. You weren't doing the crazy stuff that kind of then earns you speaking in tongues. Yeah. So there was no kind of freedom of choice and and freedom to make mistakes. Like for us, it was like this. It had to be this sort of clean, perfect version, you know, almost no opportunity to sin. Whereas like when these adults would get up and tell their stories in church, so every week they would get up and two or three people would have to give their testimony and they would tell the story of how they they came to God and how wonderful he'd been and how he, you know, saved their children's lives or got them a good parking spot at the supermarket. They would talk about their years before finding God and often it was framed as, I really sort of, these were the dark times and then I saw the light. But as a kid, and I think even even the little glimmer in their eye gave away that those times were probably the most exciting times of their life. I was curious when reading it was, were you allowed to kind of be playful about this notion of speaking in tongues or was it like just like, oh, well, no, of course you don't make fun of that because it's it's such a serious thing. Yeah, no, it was it was taken extremely seriously and it was very solemn. So there was no like mucking around, improvising, anything like that. 
because this was going to be your your ticket to salvation. So whether you got that ticket or not was hugely important. And you know, as early as seven, eight, nine, ten, people were sort of like, okay, I think um, it's about time young Tom Tilly received the Holy Spirit. Now he's getting on in years. So it it was serious because it came with a fair bit of pressure. This sounds like I'm kind of trying to brag and bring people over to Judaism. My religion, I don't mean, I don't mean to do that. But the reason I ask that is because, like, I, I went to an, a, an Orthodox Jewish school, and but also, in, obviously, in less religious things, like you're, you're kind of allowed to be a bit playful about things. Like, for instance, yeah. I remember being at this really religious guy's house for the Sabbath meal, like really religious, and mm. and and his kid was there with the book going like sending up being a rabbi, reading out the book, like going blah, 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 blah. And the rabbi was laughing and I just thought, oh, that's fairly healthy. Like make fun of things and be kind of playful about things. That Maybe that's a kind of a, a signal you're not in a cult. Well, it sounds like for some, like some parts of Jewish culture, they're great at kind of poking fun at themselves and having a laugh, judging by some of the acts of terrorism after people trying to send up Muhammad, uh, Muslims are not great at it. And I think probably Christians are maybe somewhere in between. Um, certainly in our movement, I wouldn't have even thought about joking about it off the agenda as far as kind of comic material would go. <laughs> Interesting in your book, it's like self-anthropology um, where about mm. the actual a- act of speaking in tongues where you're getting from the sort of like the the, the actual person about what's going on in their mind like slowly easing into speaking in tongues because you finally I think it's around age uh, age 10 that's when you finally speak in tongues for the first yeah. time and what what was kind of like building up in your head I love the way you that observation you've made about the book because it it is this funny mix like I write it in a very linear this happened then this happened kind of way and it's sort of almost with the language of the of me at that age like kind of just simple language of how I saw things but with the benefit of hindsight, I've been able to layer in a bit more of the explanation. So it's this funny mix of feeling like very in the present, but it, it does have some of the benefit of hindsight and a little bit of background research, which which I, I hope kind of brings some some power to it. But in the in those years, it started with, you know, just a growing awareness that this was a thing that would need to happen. So that was just always around me, that expectation that we'd receive one day. Then it slowly became more of a a conscious thing where we were, all right, well, I think you're old enough to start seeking for the Holy Spirit. So then that sort of moved on to having these children's prayer meetings where we would all get down and repeat hallelujah, hallelujah, and we'd be given this kind of coaching, a method of how to, to open ourselves up to this gift. And then as I write about my brother, who was younger than me, received on a riverbank one day out the back of Mudgee. And that was a bit of a bombshell. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd hoped it would have happened in this, you know, the birth order, but it didn't. He was seven. And then, yeah, I guess it was about a year and a half later when I was 10 that I received. Especially when you're young and you're just so confused about these things. Like, it, it's like such a gray area of like having some emotional feeling that you just have if you're a non-religious kid not going to church and then you're muttering these prayers and then like it just kind of tips over at some point in your head that you convince yourself, like, oh, now, because I am, I am feeling things and I am muttering things, this might be it. 
Yeah, and that point of distinction is is what completely undermined my confidence in the whole church for the next 10 years, that distinction point. What happened on that night when I was 10 in the old scout's cabin on the south coast in the bush in Maria? You know, I the last few times I'd been kind of praying, I'd felt this kind of warmth or this kind of intensity building up in my chest. And then that night I thought my repetitious um, praying turned into something else. Like it felt like there was a distinction. And in my world, everything hung on that distinction. But that was my interpretation of, of a physical feeling I was having. Um, and then it was you know, I spoke to my dad about it and showed him. So then it was also this distinction was based on his interpretation of what I told him and what he heard when I performed it again for him. And so my whole salvation hung on the perception on that of that distinction. And you're straight away rewarded by uh, your parents and the other elder people in the church for having, um, you know, spoken in tongues. Mm, yeah, so you're sort of taken seriously and given the full range of privileges in, in the church, including baptism. So that's how it worked in our church, that you, as if, if you're a kid, they wanted to check that you were serious and you received first and then you get baptised, whereas often the adults, you know, say someone who'd been a drug addict or had, you know, had problems and lots of actual things to repent from, they would come in and get baptised first in the hope that the sort of power of that experience would then um, you know, paved the way for God to give them the speaking in tongues gift straight afterwards, usually while they're in the baptism. That was the ideal chain of events. You're suspicious of your brother Sam and mm. uh, at, at, at the time, whether it was real or not with him? Yeah. Like I I was a bit sus on, on his, you know, he was a sneaky little brother. He was just, you know, <laughs> suspect in lots of ways and a lot of fun, um, which I write about in the book as well. Um, but, you know, I was aware of the context and how great it would look to the adults if you'd received at a young age, like, wow, so exciting, you know, and then the way he did it. And then, and then when I heard his tongue, it was basically just one syllable repeated. Whereas the adults, like, Sometimes it's, it sounded like they were speaking French or Hebrew or, or a, like a real language with lots of syllables and you heard them sort of roll in and out of this cadence and tone like they were speaking a full-blown language. So what was coming from us kids was uh, a vastly simplified and unconvincing version of it. I liked in the book when you came to Melbourne for a revival conference because it was like watching a Jackie Chan film filmed in Melbourne. That's, and you go, oh, my God, that's Burke Street. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe they just ran past that cafe. And um, so th- you ended up at the Forum, which mm. uh, is in. So m- maybe talk a bit about that building that's in the Melbourne CBD. Yeah. So, I mean. Melbourne has quite a few beautiful theatres, but this is right up there. It's a, sort of got this Gothic style. It was built um, early last century sometime and you, 
you see it on Flinders Street. It's sort of up towards the MCG end of Flinders Street, um, loosely speaking. Um, has these big minarets and a big clock tower, very decorative theatre. And the Revival Centres was formed by a very interesting Melbourne man called Lloyd Longfield. Um, he was a returned World War II soldier who'd become part of the Pentecostal movement and then broke away from his church to form this one and established his own unique doctrine where you had to speak in tongues to be saved. And that was made it completely unique from almost all of the other Pentecostals. They believed it was just sort of a, a powerful addition to your salvation, whereas Lloyd Longfield believed it, it was the only true sign of salvation. And somehow he got to the point where he was able to buy the forum like for the church. So um, in the 80s and 90s, the forum was the headquarters of the Revival Centre. Yeah, when, when I was uh, really young, used to walk past that, and this is like before you could just find out things on the internet straight away mm. within five seconds. So things that were kind of hidden and uh, mystical, you know, like the church, like you'd walk past the Church of Scientology, it's like, ooh, and there's mm. just like no way you can find out about what's going on in there unless you go mm. in there or whatever. So the forum in the CBD, it had these strange posters behind glass on the outside of like you just felt there was something mm. um, mystical going on about like the end of the world and yeah and like yeah like these illustrations that looked like they they had been like drawn around world war Two of mm. you know planet earth and crosses on it and and so it was quite a mysterious building and then one of the rumors that when around, I don't know if this is true, mm. and so or whether it's just an urban myth, is that after um, this man that, thanks to reading your book, I don't know his name, Lloyd Longfield. Anyway, that after he bought the forum, because there were all these uh, statues there of like naked mm. men and women on the inside, that he got he got the people to like snap off all the penises, and that there's. <laughs> Uh, that, that, and that there's a sack of these like uh, of these penises that's like uh, up in the rooftop of 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 the forum, and because people are like, oh look there, look 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 how it's just kind of like it, it makes no sense. All those statues, like if they were if they were in a museum, there'd be the penis there, but now it's like the penis isn't there. So anyway, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just thought I'd add some color. Well, I've never gone looking for the penises. Could have been the end of the book, the in search of the of the penises, and and he was into a thing called British Israelism. Is that where? Yeah. And that's like, so so there's this thing, and it's 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 so uh, prominent all around the world. Of people read the Old Testament, and in the mm. Old Testament, it talks about how there's these lost tribes of Israel, mm. and people are really getting into the story of the Old Testament that they're slaves and they're free or whatever, and like. For, for most normies, it's like, oh, that's the Jews, right? Mm. But you had to just have all these groups from like um, even like Aborig some Aboriginal groups in Australia. You have all these groups all over the world and they say, oh, no, no, that's talking about me. That's talking about yeah. my people. And he was like this, yeah, this guy who decided that the, the lost tribe or one of the lost tribes being talked about in the Bible is actually these British people like him. Yeah, so it's a it's a huge movement, and it, um, British Israelism was part of um, a, a big part of the church he went to um, before he started his own, 
And so there was a much bigger movement that he'd sort of um, taken interest in and, and believed in their theories. And, and this has been dis, disproven, but um, the version of this British Israelism that the Revival Centre ascribes to and still does is that the Lost Tribes of Israel um, travelled up through the Caucasus Mountains and um, found their way to Britain and are direct um, have direct lineage um, all the way to the royal family. So from King David in the Old Testament through to the royal family and the basic tank out, as far as I could understand it and from what I've read, is that that meant, um, you know, the the people of the British Isles, um, and that includes America, um, a colony of um, of England until it found independence. That um, that yeah, they they are God's real chosen ones and have a special place in God's plan. And I could never square away. Well, well how special are they? Like, do they, are they the only ones who are saved? Or can because I thought salvation was for everyone. So the the two didn't really marry up. What how special this place was in God's plan. Um, so it's a, it's a very strange theory. And I didn't question it. Like, it, it wasn't the reason I left the church. It wasn't until much later on that I found it out. It, it was, um, it had been discredited. And then I, then I thought about some of the other things that we were taught. And these were like parallel things to the, the core message of Christianity. So often at church as a kid, they go, oh, tonight we're going to have a British Israel night. And so they'd pull out the um, overhead projector and, you know, bring up all these diagrams showing all the links. And it was just mind-numbing and brain-bending as a child. And then the other, the other theory that came out in these sort of um, extra educational nights was numerology, Bible numerics, where someone had gone through the Bible and found the numerical value of all the, the words and the letters and found that there were all these patterns that proved that it must be the work of God. Um, also not true. And actually the revival centers have seen the light on that one and moved away from it. Um, the other one was um, pyramidology where they found some um, some measurements in the Pyramid of Giza and there was a theory that those measurements marked key moments in history that happened well and truly, you know, thousands of years after the pyramids were built so that these these pyramids were essentially a a physical statement of prophecy. Like when you when you start a religion, you should be vaguer about it because like the Mormons get in the same trouble uh, by making these claims and because they're sort of relatively new, you can kind mm. of, you know, do the DNA testing and chip away at the fossils and everything. <laughs> but like yeah, you just have to keep it a lot, a lot vaguer if you yeah. start a religion. Because you don't have the benefit of the real ye olden ones where, yeah, it's hard to prove or disprove anything because it was so long ago. Yeah, I guess the like the, the longer time's gone on, the more science has been able to chip away at the credibility of <laughs> um, religious theories or, or or just theories that people come up with in general. But I guess the, the Revival Centre was sort of clever in that it put these, these extracurricular sort of beliefs a bit off to the side and mostly focused on the speaking in tongues. So it and you only ever found out about these elements if you were kind of deep on the inside. So it wasn't something they really advertised as, as much on, on the outside. And did you ever have a, a an experience where you just really totally fell under the spell of it 
and were convinced it was happening? Or, or was was there always just a little bit of doubt in your head? I I really wanted it. Like I wanted it to be right. I was, even after I thought I'd received, I I had years where I sort of, I came clean with God about my doubts, even though I'd never told any human beings. I said, you know, I'm getting to like 18, 19, and I'm thinking, hey, God, I've, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know if I really spoke in tongues properly that time, and I might have been making it up for the last nine years, but I really want to connect with you. I want to feel the power. I want to, you know, be a, a positive um, a positive contributor to this beautiful community that we've got. I want to, I want to live this out. I want to live the revival center dream. So, there were moments in those years where I, I really threw myself into it, and there were there were many many moments at kids camps and Christmas camps in the years before that where I earnestly was throwing my heart in God's direction. And so, yeah, in those moments, I definitely would have felt the energy and the power and the reverence of a, of a belief in God. But it was other Christians. It wasn't like you um, bumped into Richard Dawkins or anything, Christopher <laughs> Hitchens. There was other Christians that, and that, you, that you'd met overseas that were the first to kind of like help you um, kind of talk through all these things and um, yeah. start to question them. Yeah, so like my my journey away from the church happened in um, like small increments and it would have been too scary for me just to, like I just couldn't have just jumped straight into hedonism and, and thrown the whole thing away. I just, it just would have rattled my core too hard. Like I would have, I would have collapsed into a pit of despair and depression. Um, and so yeah, initially the first break away, the first bit of deprogramming from from the revival centers was meeting a Christian guy on my first backpacking trip overseas, and he was like a loose party animal, and you know, in in the revival centers would have been seen as um, a sort of a, you know a really bad sinner. Um, he was quite good at sinning. So he was a good sinner and a bad sinner, depending on how you looked at him. Um, but he talked all about this compassionate side of Jesus, about um, the sort of empathy he had for the the people on the bottom end of the power hierarchy, the, the strugglers, the battlers, the prostitutes, the sick, the needy, and how he, you know, like you, you were sort of hinting at the the arguments he had with the religious orthodoxy of, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. So he really painted this picture of Jesus of rejecting the the structure and the the piousness of those those hierarchies and sticking up for the little guy and um, building them up and and rejection of the the rich. You know, harder to to go for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than a than a poor man to make it into heaven. Um, all that kind of stuff. So he showed this different um, compassionate side of Jesus, whereas the revival center had all been all about, you know, right or wrong, you know, black and white, do you speak in tongues or not, you're saved or not, and everyone else is wrong and we're right. And so I suddenly saw this new image of Jesus and it also appealed to me, not because just how he sounded like a better person and more positive, that it sounded adventurous and fun. And I was like, I'm loving this traveling. I've got these doubts about the church. 
the box doesn't feel like it fits me anymore. And I can now see this like exciting, um, compassionate version of Jesus. And I can be a good person without the revival center. And that was my first little mental breakaway from it. I saw, cause otherwise it was like being the revival centers or being a lake of eternal fire and brimstone. But for the first time, this guy helped me see some, some other possibility. And what was your parents like and your brother like when they got wise for the fact you were uh, thinking about stepping away from the revival centre? Um, it was it was a mixed reaction. So initially when I got back from that overseas trip, um, yeah, they were sort of su- supportive initially. And then when I, I started coming um, to blows with the church and had my first suspension and Initially, my parents kind of got it because they weren't simplistic in their approach to it. Like they understood that the church was a bit too restrictive. My dad was like a liberal pastor within the kind of, um, you know, compared to the more orthodox uh, members of the church. So he understood my concerns. Um, and in fact, I write about this this book that I got into at that time as I started shifting my thinking, um, Alan Watts, The Wisdom of Insecurity. Um, which I found really instructive at the time. Um, my dad had that book on his shelf. I was like, oh, dad, this this Christian guy I met overseas recommended this book. And he goes, no, I actually have that on my shelf. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, I got, I got mixed reviews from my parents initially on my issues that I was um, bringing up. But then as I really pulled away from the church and um, – the second time I left, which it just all got a lot heavier and they couldn't support me anymore. And that's when um, I started to just feel really lost and really kind of um, despairing. It's Because uh, it's kind of really cool to have a community. <laughs> and and mm. maybe that's community's a big family, but in this case, family and community was like intertwined. It probably is all, all the time. So, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a roll of the dice to decide to uh, like oh there, there's so many ne- things I think are negative in this that I'm gonna rather than just bite my tongue and put up with them mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw myself out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think I I think I imagined a version of the future where I had all the rush of the good feelings. Um, and went out on my own, but I hadn't calculated that without the community and that regular human contact that I got from that community that I would feel lonely and destabilised so I couldn't enact that, that positivity and the ideas. You know that difference where you can, yeah. you, can, you can have this rush of almost euphoria about how you want to live your life and, and sometimes you, you create your goals and your values almost in those moments of euphoria um, and you, you sort of have these beautiful images of how you're going to strike out on your own and live the life you want to live. But then on, on a day-to-day level without that human support, even just the company, you, you kind of become very weak. It's like, it's like you're going to set out to walk across the desert and then you realize without water, you get thirsty quite quickly. And, and another thing, people can feel when they break away from a community. They can have an over-romanticised view of everyone but the community they grew up in. So it yeah. can be like, oh, my God, in your case, all these 
revivalists. They're so ridiculous. They're so, you know, and like, oh, my God, there's just all these, every like, like even if you don't consciously think about it, you're sort of like subconsciously kind of assuming that like all, all these other communities out there, whatever they may be, oh, my God, they're brilliant. <laughs> Something. Yeah. And then it, it can be sort of happen quite slowly, but it finally clicks with you going, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's not like there's this perfect other world that's sort mm. of, that, that's out there. Yeah, it's just the, it's that sort of grass is greener confirmation bias sort of trap that we just always fall into when we're looking at something we want. We only look at the the good parts of it without truly understanding what's sort of, um, yeah, under the sea, the, the bigger part of that iceberg and the reality of it. And as a kid, I sort of knew that like just everyday secular Aussie life was a bit, I don't know, I, I liked that we had this spiritual life, something that went beyond the here and now. And I, I, I often thought that just, you know, the life of sport, drinking, TV and barbecues was a bit bland. Um, but then once I travelled overseas and seen European culture, it was quite different. And I was like, oh, there's a there's rich, beautiful life and and worlds to explore in in the secular world. I just need to to find them. So then I sort of when I got sort of lonely and a bit depressed outside without that that close community, I sort of thought, oh, it's probably just Australia, you know, like Australian culture. It can be a bit kind of like you know, private, not in my backyard, lacking community, like, you know, compared to some other more kind of vibrant, connected, you know, societies. And where do you stand with God and Jesus Christ today? Um, basically, I, I, I think science gives us the best explanation of why we're, why we're here on this um, bit of dirt flying around um, the universe, and I, I don't think it's the perfect explanation, but for me, it's probably the the best way to understand it. And so, um, in terms of Christianity, um, I guess I you know I see it as a, a bunch of stories that have had an enormous cultural and for some people spiritual impact. And I think some of the ideas are are absolutely revolutionary and beautiful and have formed really good parts of our our society. Um, but I don't have a personal belief in it. I don't believe that um, those events played out exactly as they are explained in, in the Bible and, and that we need to follow that as our, our blueprint for salvation and spirituality. But I'm also not sure, as I said, like science gives us the best explanation, but it doesn't fully explain it. So I'm like a tiny percent, you know, unsure and open to a very radical explanation that could involve some kind of God, but that's not where the evidence is pointing me. Well, God, you can't blame me. I tried to give it one more shot on behalf of you, God, but... There you go. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, hey, so, uh, you, yeah. I know we're almost out of time, but you've done a lot of work in this space looking at religious communities. And one of the first times I heard of you was John Safran versus God, which was just epic. And, you know, is it like for me, almost a blueprint of how to do an amazing, immersive doco series. So, where does this, where, what do you think of my story? Where does it fit within this realm of other 
religious communities that you've looked at over the years? Well, you really screwed up because you were in the right one and you've left it. No, I don't. (laughs) I just, um, it's all, it's all like degrees of gray, if you know what I mean. Like for instance, Mm -hmm. I think it's really cool that there's communities and there's those sorts of structures or whatever. And, um, but then obviously when they become too controlling and like, like I don't really mind that they're irrational or, or at least mm. you can't prove, you can't prove any of it. Like mm. that seems slightly like I'm not, I'm a bit chill about that, but again, within limits, because mm. I think you have to be respectful towards uh, like science. And there's something really irritating about, being disrespectful to, for science when you're soaking up all the benefits of following of living in a society that's following the scientific method. <laughs> like people just seem to think, oh, we're all living quite well and that's just the normal as opposed to, no, 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 whilst we're off being indulgent with religion and rock music and everything like that, yeah. there's been like scientists and doctors doing their things. So it, it's all like a balancing act or whatever, but... Yeah, I think like a mystical religion is kind of cool, and like, I, like I, I'm not really that um, bummed out by. Oh, well, it's it, it's not true. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, but but when I was exploring it, because I always, I basically, I I I kind of wanted all to be true more than any yeah. like priest or rabbi or imam. I want I wanted this all to be true more than them. And so when I go exploring, I try to uh, fall into that and just go along with their way of thinking and really hope that it comes true. So, like, I've done things like with voodooism in Haiti, for Mm. instance, and I just, just, you you just kind of, like, fall into it and and try to suspend disbelief. But uh, but I, I do think when it comes to things like, um, exorcisms and speaking in tongues and stuff like it can be, it can be good, but it, I mean, all these things are it's it's about they stop being good when you kind of don't have free will and you're being controlled. Like, it's a bit like, mm. oh, is the burqa good or bad or whatever? And it's like, mm. well, and and there's this real like cross, uh, crossed wires type thing because you have like women in the west who. Of course, it's fine to wear that if you if you've got the option not to, and you choose mm. to, or whatever. And and that's a very different thing from when you don't have a choice, if you know what I mean. So that yeah. with all these things like speaking in tongues and exorcisms and flapping around on the floor, like I think that's kind of cool. Like it's just really like fun therapy and stuff like that. And but then obviously the thing is whether whether how much you're being manipulated, how much you're allowed to kind of leave and. So I've got a real fortunate thing where I get to kind of cruise on in and then cruise on out, and that's obviously a very different experience yeah. to, like, you can't cruise out. <laughs> you can only you can cruise out, but only once. You can't cruise back in. Yeah, and and usually with this screaming, in your case, it's like from the depths of your soul or whatever. In the revival, mm. usually a lot of the screaming is. Uh, external like there's you've got some sort of spirit in you or some demon in you or whatever Mm. and in some communities that's kind of like a fun way of putting things on the table like for instance if you've got a grievance in your little community you get to Mm. like scream it out and then 
you wake up from and and you don't have to take responsibility for screaming that out because it wasn't you, it was the demon. So it's sort mm. of like I've heard that in like in some like communities where there's like it's really patriarchal and you and women aren't allowed to speak as much or whatever. It's this great loophole. So a woman can be flapping around and saying what she really thinks. And then uh everyone accepts that she's allowed to say that because she's not saying it, the demon's saying it. So mm. yeah, there's lots of there's lots of pro-exorcism <laughs> cases, <laughs> arguments. Yeah. Well I guess for you like yeah you know, having travelled into many of those different communities and scenarios, it's much more fun to sail in on the winds of of hope that it's yeah. real because maybe some part of it is. It's better than going around the world telling everyone they're wrong and it's not true. That's not fun. Yeah. And it's also, again, it's a matter of degrees and it's a ma- matter of kind of how it's balancing with other considerations or whatever, but... Like, like if you're in a despondent situation, even like socioeconomically, um, it can really kind of, you know, it can be like, oh, well, give you, give you a bit of hope in a good way. Like there's a lot of mm. looking in a bad way and sort of going, oh, well, it's opium for the masses or because you're thinking God can get you out of this, you're not going to do things that can really get you out of it. And like everything, like every, it's, everything's true, like on a level, I guess, but whatever, but I do feel like like a lot of stressed out people and despondent people, like this can be a a way, religion can be a way to kind of just hold on and not kind of lose all hope and also just talk and it becomes a, a way you can talk through things and, um, yeah, it's like, like people don't go up to, you know, Aboriginal people doing a corroboree or whatever, and it's like, oh, you jerk. <laughs> how's this helping anything? Blowing that didgeridoo and lighting that fire, you jerks. Like, how's this helping <laughs> or whatever? Because we just understand correctly that it's like, no, it is. It's like it's a good layer of things to have. And cultural so I think cultural other, connection and meaning. Yeah, yeah. Cult- yeah, cultural connection and stuff. So I think um, in the same way that most uh, Australians would go, oh, of course it's cool that there's Aboriginal rituals and <laughs> That's mm. all tied in with spirituality and mysticism. I think you can like apply that to other cultural beliefs, non-Aboriginal ones, and go, well, you know, it is kind of good to have a community and have a beliefs and have rituals and stuff like that. Like, yeah, like I really, I, I really like the rituals and the uh, and the unknowns in religion. And so I, yeah. I think the world would, I think the world would be weak without it. But yes, of course. Of course, you have to draw the line somewhere because I know people are going, mm. well, yeah, but, John, you weren't beaten with the stick yeah. where the devil will get out of you and, and you'd have a different opinion if that happened and, and it's there's lots of controlling and that's all true. It's all yeah. true. It's all true. Anyway, basically, I don't have the answers. Yeah, that makes the searching more fun. Yes. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Gallagher. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you.